Faith that shakes. This is part 29. We're looking at Acts 18 tonight. And this is part one of Acts 18. So I want to say a prayer and then we're going to jump right into it. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would lead us into it. Reveal the truth that's there to us, Lord. Let it make a difference in our lives. Build us up on our most holy faith, Lord. Grow that faith in us. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And I give you praise for that tonight in Jesus' name. Everybody say amen. amen. Verses 1 through 3 of Acts 18. By the way, I should have shown it if you didn't see it. Uh, go to Facebook, look, look it up, and you can see where Brother Tenney, who has preached here before, T.F. Tenney, he's a bishop to me, uh, opened the U.S. Senate in prayer yesterday. And it was pretty amazing. And uh, he's an amazing guy. He's the Ben Franklin of Pentecost. And uh, he opened the Senate in prayer. Anybody see that on uh, the C-SPAN or anything? It's amazing. Uh, go check it out. He's... Uh, I'm telling you, we're going to get that invite to the White House, I'm sure, any day now. Uh, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome. And he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked. For by occupation, they were tent makers. So I want to jump into this. Athens, which is where Paul had been. You know, we talked about that. It was given wholly over to idols, and he preached the sermon there and had some success. But it was uh, an amazing, uh, Acts 17 was phenomenal. We looked at uh, Adam and Noah and Ham, Shem and Japheth last time and got into all that made of one blood, all nations and gave them a time to rule and dominate the earth. We looked at all that. Fascinating. So Paul has come from Athens. He's come into Corinth. Athens was about 50 miles away. And so Paul makes the journey. We don't know if it was by land or by sea. It goes 50 miles to Corinth. Athens was a university town, a college town. But Corinth took the lead in Greece uh, as the commanding city. It was a city of commerce. It was five times larger than Athens. Corinth had a population of close to half a million. It had two strategically placed harbors. It was the center of trade. It was rich and it was a very sinful city. Ancient Corinth had all been but been destroyed 150 years prior to Paul's getting there. So ancient, this is an ancient city. But 150 years before our reading, it had been destroyed by the Roman general Lucius Mummius because of an uprising that they had. But Julius Caesar couldn't resist its geographical advantages. So he rebuilt Corinth. Uh, 50 years after its destruction. So the Corinth that Paul is looking at is about 100 years old. So we think in terms of ancient cities, and this is an ancient city, but so much of it had been destroyed, pretty much all of it. So Paul's looking at a relatively recently built city, about 100 years old when Julius Caesar started the rebuild. 
It was less of a Grecian city now, more of a Roman colony, and it was populated by colonists, Roman colonists who were freedmen who went there to, uh, to make money. And so that's what it, was, it had become by the time Paul got there. Now, Paul would write a letter to the church at Rome, the book of Romans, uh, it, it was not a church that he started, uh, not a church that he established, but one that he had heard of, and very likely he had heard of this church from a dynamic Christian couple who were from Rome, but who were living in Corinth, that is Aquila and Priscilla, who come into this story. And we're going to take a quick little detour and take a look at the church at Rome. It'll make sense for a couple of minutes to grasp the powerful influence of Aquila and Priscilla on the great apostle Paul. Are you with me? Now, Paul would write this letter to Rome, probably from Corinth. Scholars think he wrote it from this city that he has now entered. Technically, the church at Rome was not established directly by any apostle. That's not to say that the apostles were not influential or involved in the beginning of the church at Rome. Indeed, they were. It's just that they were not physically there at its beginning. It was established by Jews who returned to Rome from Jerusalem after Acts 2 and began teaching in the synagogues there. Now, that's cool. I got to say this. To me, that's cool in a very specific way because the apostles were not physically here at Life Point when Life Point was started either. And the bottom line is this they were influential in us, their teaching was very real to us, and in a sense, they were part of our beginning here. Uh, they were involved at the beginning of Life Point. But here's the deal. Uh, you don't have to have apostles physically on site to have an apostolic church. It's the teaching, right? It's following the teaching of Jesus as we see demonstrated uh, in the book of Acts by the twelve. So we, we have that influence. I, wanted, I want you to see this. This, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Are you with me? Yeah. Acts chapter 2, 1 through 16 when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. Suddenly there came a sound from heaven. You know the story. The Holy Spirit falls. They begin speaking in tongues. They roll out into the street, the 120 in the upper room. And, and they were all amazed, verse 7, and marvel, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one in our own language in which we were born? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes. And so we have visitors from Rome there. They hear the Galilean Jews speaking in tongues. Well, you have 120 immediately turning into 3,000. The crowd that gathered around, many of them were converted, baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost, speaking in tongues. And, and in that crowd, you have to say there were visitors from Rome 
who were there. And then verse 40, and with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. 3,000 added, look at 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, prayers. Fear came upon every soul. Many signs and wonders were done at the hands of the apostles. They had everything in common. Soul things daily. They continued breaking bread, house to house, praising God, having favor with the Lord, having favor with people. The Lord added to them such as should be saved. So here you have this group, some of which from Rome, I believe you can argue, who were thoroughly converted and indoctrinated while they were at Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost, the pilgrimage, and then they go back to Rome and they begin to teach what they had experienced and what they had heard in the synagogues there in Rome. All right. Now, the Roman Empire had a population of about 70 million people at this time. Of those, about 7 million were Jews. So they were a very visible minority. They also had special privileges to practice their religion, which a lot of conquered peoples did not experience that freedom. So this made them an, a, a despised group of people. It was said by some historians, or at least one in particular that I read after, a good citizen of Pax Romana and a good Jew could not be one in the same person. You couldn't be a good Jew and a good citizen of Rome. The Sanhedrin acted as this authority, this Jewish authority, that could discipline anyone in its sphere of influence. It was acknowledged and allowed to function as such in Rome, a religious authority by Rome. And these visitors from Rome in Acts 2 were Jews, and they went back to their synagogues, they preached Jesus, and this Roman church uh, was, it, it obviously was Jewish, because the, it was all Jewish. They go back to Rome, they go back to the synagogue, they begin preaching Jesus, but then the edict of Claudius, which is mentioned in our original reading here in Acts 18, the edict of Claudius expelled the Jews from Rome... And many fled, including Aquila and Priscilla. So a little history. It's going to all come together in a minute. And ironically, Emperor Nero in the mid-50s allowed them to, to all return. So during this six-year period of time, the Roman church still existed, but the Jews had been kicked out. So if it still existed, there were Gentiles in the church. So this is a, an inter- cultural, multicultural, multi-generational church at Rome. And, and so this is prior to Cornelius, prior to the Samaritans coming in, you've got Roman Christians out here that have become a part of the fabric of the church. Gentiles, okay? Before the first Gentile, which we think of as Cornelius and his household. So it's fascinating that th this is all taking place and in, in, in part of that multicultural church included Aquila 
and Priscilla. So uh, the city of Rome, you know, has, uh, uh, this is what I want, want you to get, because really, Romans, the book of Romans makes more sense with these facts in mind. But Rome was, you know, the belly of the beast, the Colosseum, Circus Maximus, palaces, temples to all these different gods, drenched in paganism, witchcraft, self-indulgence, sexual promiscuity, power, arrogance, and yet it had a church that rocked. It had a church that, that rocked. Now, check this out. It depends on who you study, but scholars a lot agree that this church may have not been any bigger than life points current size as a matter of fact in Romans 16 there are three households that are mentioned the church at Rome could have only been three house churches comprised of about 50 in each house church so a church in Rome of only about 150 yet yet it was producing the likes of Aquila and Priscilla. Jerusalem was the big church. Corinth had uh, a lot of people as well. Some say the church at Corinth would become 70,000 strong. But the church at Rome, not so much. It lends itself uh, historically and, and scripturally to, to look as though it was only 150 people maybe. A, a small church in a very large metropolitan city. The belly of the beast, like I said. Jerusalem, a church of thousands. Corinth, 70,000. Not Rome. And Rome was the capital, the center of everything. So here you have, coming from this church, Aquila and Priscilla. Hardcore, powerful, fully committed, uncompromising believers in Jesus from a fierce church. And God hooked this dynamic couple up with the great Apostle Paul, who was a powerhouse in his own right. It's amazing to me. What a team. Here's the point. God's putting together a team. Aquila and Priscilla. Edict of Claudia. Uh, Claudius. What, what? Claudius is like, I got an idea. I'm going to kick all the Jews out of Rome. I don't know if God like put that thought in his brain. Uh, I don't know. But I do know because of that, Aquila and Priscilla ended up at Corinth with the great Apostle Paul. So here they are, this team. Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. So here we have Paul reasoning in the, uh, in the synagogue every Sabbath, persuading both Jews and Greeks. It says he persuaded them. That means they went beyond believing. We looked at the word persuade in one of our Bible studies. They were persuaded. So they went beyond just belief and they went to the realm of obeying from the heart. We know from the letters he wrote to the church at Corinth that that meant they were, they were water baptized, spirit baptized, tongue talking believers. This was a church not different than what we are. They, they, were, they repented, were water baptized, and filled with the spirit. We see that from the letter. And we see this in... Uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 2, verse 1, we see the, the, the type of preaching that Paul brought 
to the table. We're going to look at where he's, he's preaching in the synagogue, but what did he preach? Well, 1 Corinthians 2, a letter written to the church that he's establishing, it says, And I, brethren, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom, declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What's that mean? I didn't want to talk to you about uh, Sophocles, and I didn't want to talk to you about uh, Mephistopheles, and I didn't want to talk to you about uh, Socrates, and I didn't want to talk to you about Plato, and I didn't want to talk to you about Aristotle. I, I didn't come to deal with you in the realm of the philosophy or the philosophical. I came to preach Jesus Christ to you and him crucified. I was with you in, in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. We're going to see this in just a moment. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of the human wisdom, the philosophers that you're used to, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith would not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. <laughs> I love this. Now, Paul had a powerful ministry team with him, helping him to fire on all cylinders, Aquila and Priscilla. Here's a point. To really hit your stride, you need a team. The more powerful your ministry partners are in, in, in what God's called you to do, the more powerful your ministry will be. But power, listen to this, this is strong, doesn't always equal success, at least in the way that we define it. Look at verses 5 through 10. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. So now we know he's, the team has grown. Wow, Silas is a prophet. Silas was with Paul in the prison when it shook. And they got out. And, and, and they won the Philippian jailer. Silas is a prophet, powerful man of God. Timothy is Paul's son in the gospel. Uh, from a powerful lineage of powerful Christians. And, and so they joined the team. And Paul is compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews <laughs> that Jesus is the Christ. And, and, and notice, he was compelled by the Spirit. So this is not a good idea. This is a God idea. The Spirit rises up in Paul and says, hey, here's what you need to do. But just because it was a God idea doesn't necessarily mean he got the results Again, or success in the way that we define it. Notice this, verse 6. But when they opposed him and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your heads. I am clean. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. So Paul is led and anointed by the Holy Spirit. To preach to these particular people. And he doesn't preach philosophy. He, he preaches the power of God. And, and, and he doesn't preach with enticing words of man's wisdom. But in a demonstration of the spirit. So he's anointed. He's called. He was moved on by the Holy Spirit. To do exactly what he did. And yet these people 
opposed him and blasphemed. What? So, my question is, was Paul successful? Yes, he was. Why? Because he discharged the responsibility that God laid upon him. The Spirit moved on him and said, go do this. Paul went and did what the Spirit told him to do. And he didn't have success in the way that we would deem it. He couldn't write a church growth book from that experience. He couldn't set up a website. He couldn't set up a chat room and say, come talk to me. I help you start a church. I know exactly how to do it. Because they opposed him and blasphemed. It went from bad to worse. He's preaching Jesus is the Christ. Which involves the fact that Jesus is God. And they blasphemed saying he's not God. They blasphemed. They were good God-fearing Jews. He comes preaches the message of Jesus and they turn into blasphemers. So was he successful? Yes, he was successful. Because he did what God told him to do. It was a necessary step. And apparently their blood was on his hands until he discharged his responsibility. Our responsibility is to tell people about Jesus. What they do with them is their own business. But their blood is on my hands. There's some people that God leads me to and their blood is on my hands. I am responsible. And my success is do I do what God's called me to do? And I can't base whether I was successful on their response. Does that make sense? We see it right here in the book of Acts with the great apostle Paul backed up by Aquila and Priscilla and Silas and Timothy. And he goes in with an anointing and a power of God. And we quote that from 1 Corinthians, you know, like, when I came, I didn't come with enticing words of men's wisdom, with empowered demonstration. Woo! And they opposed him and blasphemed. What? People can choose. Everybody say, people can choose. People can choose. Power of choice. Very strong. Now, he's got Aquila and Priscilla, Silas, Timothy. What he did didn't translate into conversions, but he discharged the will of God. And Aquila and Priscilla, don't you think they could say, hey, bud, we understand. See, back home in Rome, we go to a church of about 150. We live in a city of a million. Oh, man, they hate us. Wow. But we're standing strong. See, we've learned to present our bodies unto God a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable, which is our reasonable service. Some of my brothers, some of my cousins were in the Colosseum, you see. And we've learned to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. We get it, Paul. 
We're with you, bud. Everybody's not going to listen to you. I come from a small church, but it's a strong church. I'm against the whole us four no more mentality, you know, like I hate it when we say it, we got a small church, but we strong. You know, to me, a lot of times that's an excuse for not doing the hard work. And we'll see this in a minute, putting on your mud boots and getting your hands dirty and that kind of thing. We'll use that as an excuse. Yeah, we're we're not that big, but man, you know, we believe it's straight, you know, that kind of thing. I'm against that mentality. But on the other hand, there is something to be said about an uncompromising church. They came from an uncompromising church. I think that's why God had them on Paul's team. Now, cover a couple things real quickly. I know we're kind of detouring. We're coming back. But these are all elements that help this make more sense. 1 Thessalonians 3, 6 says, But now that Timothy has come to us from you and brought us good news of your faith and love. This is Paul writing to the church at Thessalonica. He had left back there. It says, uh, And that you always have good remembrance of us, greatly desiring to see us as we also to see you. Silas and Timothy brought a good report while... Paul was at Corinth. So Paul was able to set aside his, not only, not only a good report, but they brought an offering. They brought some financial assistance. So Paul was able to get a good report and was also able to set aside his bivocational situation of tent making, which is uh, a lot of, there's some opinions on that, but it looks to be working with leather, a trade that, that Jewish kids were taught, uh, they had different trades they were taught, and this is the one he was taught, uh, which was a leather trade. And he was able to focus full-time on his ministry, on his ministry. 2 Corinthians eleven eight nine 8, 9 says, I robbed other churches, not literally, he didn't literally, it says, Paul says, I robbed other churches. That doesn't mean he went to the ushers and he's like, give me your offering, you know, like it wasn't like that. He says, I robbed other churches, not literally, but he explains it, taking wages from them to minister to you. He's talking to the church at Corinth that he's establishing. He says, I, 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 I took wages from them, Philippi, back there. That's why he said, my God will supply all your needs. We've talked about that. Uh, he took wages from them to minister to you. And when I was present with you and in need, I was a burden to no one. For what I lacked, the brethren who came from Macedonia supplied. And in everything, I kept myself from being burdensome to you. And so I will keep myself. So this was uh, a time where he was able to quit the tent making, uh, leather making stuff, and uh, give himself full time into his ministry, which we're going to see what that looks like now. Are you with me? Yeah. Verses 7 through 11. And he departed from there and entered the house of a certain man named Justice, one who worshiped God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Then Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, we almost named Alexander Crispus. Uh, believed on the Lord with all his household and many of the Corinthians. He could have had a Christmas Christmas, right? Uh, and many of the Corinthians hearing believed and were baptized. Now the Lord spoke to Paul in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent. For I am with you and no one will attack you to hurt you. For I have many people in this city. And he continued there a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. Now, 1 Corinthians 1.14, I won't read it, but it just says that 
it, it tells us that Paul personally baptized, water baptized, this guy named Crispus. He had teams organized at Corinth to do the water baptisms. I don't know if it was Paul and uh, Silas and, and Timothy and, and uh, Aquila and Priscilla. I don't know. But he had teams organized to do the water baptisms. But Crispus and probably his entire household was baptized by Paul himself. And many of the Corinthians, it says, hearing, believed and were baptized. So here we have a lot of success that starts taking place. He's had some setbacks. Now he's having some success. Now, we know what kind of people these Corinthians were. We know this from the letter. Again, 1 Corinthians 1.26. For you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. So here he goes to this, this fabulous city of Corinth, a relatively new city. It's an industrious city. It's not a university city, but they still appreciate philosophy. Very immoral people, but they're not wise according to the flesh. They're not mighty. And he begins to win these people. They're not noble. Paul begins to win these people. We also see this in 1 Corinthians 6, 4 and 5, uh, or, or 9, 10, 11, I think it is, 9, 10, 11. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither, he gets explicit, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. I want to point out again, this is not just Paul. This is a powerful team working together. Paul, an apostle born out of due season. Aquila, from a famous Roman general's family, more than likely. His name means eagle. And in Rome, the eagle was everything, right? Priscilla is from the prestigious, legendary family of Rome, Prisca. She is from the family of Prisca. Silas is a prophet. Timothy is a pastor, an evangelist, a, a, a powerful man of God. And to really get the, the job done, Paul spiritually needed a great team. And God had assembled this team. And, and I can say that today. God's assembling a great team here at Life Point. He's putting a great team together here at Life Point. Paul needed, and, and even with this amazing team, Paul needed a word of encouragement. I'm just blown away at the humanity of Paul that we dig out of these scriptures. You've got to mine it out, but it's in there. He, he said, I was in fear and trembling when I came to you. I was afraid. I had Aquila and Priscilla with me. Paul, uh, Timothy and Silas came, brought money. I had money. I had people, personnel, powerful personnel. I, I had a, a great team with me, but I was afraid. So even with all of that, the resurrected Christ appears to Paul and says, don't be afraid. Speak what I've put in your heart. Do not be silent. Here's what you've got to understand, Paul. I have many people in this city. I have many people in this city. Paul was feeling threatened. I'm telling you, sometimes there is pressure on us 
to make us mute. To silence us. And we're the, we're the silent Christian. We'll take St. Thomas Aquinas, I believe it was, that said, you know, I preach all the time. Sometimes I use words. And so we, that's what we say, you know, like that's how I'm just going to live my life, be an example, you know. But I'm never going to say anything, which is really, if you really break that down, it's really dumb. I know your actions speak louder than words, blah, blah, blah. But like, if you're going to talk about Jesus, you've got to use your mouth and say the word Jesus somewhere, right? They're going to follow your actions and go, Jesus. No, you're going to have to use words. And there's a pressure that comes upon us to be mute, silent, not say a word. It's crazy to me the way culture is, society is, Hollywood is. Everybody's so vocal, just speaking all this stuff, and so much of it is ignorance, stupidity, and blasphemous, and antichrist, and anti-God, and anti-church. And what happens to the church? There's a pressure to not say anything as to not offend, or to get in trouble, or to be ostracized, or, or marked. And so there was a, uh, even with a great team in place, this great missionary is afraid. Philip Hughes points out Paul was dealing with culture shock in Athens and moral shock in Corinth. And his Jewish brothers had rejected him and blasphemed. And, and, and we, we see the pattern, Romans 1.16, he would always go to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. But even with this powerful team providentially brought together financial support from other churches, he needed a bit of a kick in the seat of the pants and the promise of much people in this city rung a bell in his brain. And God said, I'll protect you. I'll be with you. And, and here, here's my point. Sometimes the low-hanging fruit is not where the people are. He went to the synagogue, people he had a lot in common with, people that spoke the language, and he could communicate them, and yet they rejected him. Sometimes what you've got to do is get out of your comfort zone and into a different group of people that's not so easy to reach. And as Brother Marcelli said, put on your mud boots and get out there among the, as he said it in his own words to the letter at the, to the Corinthians, to the, get out there among the unrighteous. Get out there among the fornicators and the idolaters and the adulterers and the homosexuals and the sodomites and the thieves and the covetous and the drunkards and the revilers and the extortioners. you got to get out amongst those who are not so wise according to the flesh. The not many mighty and not many, not many noble because there are many people like that. There were in Corinth and there are in Prairieville. A lot of people, they're, they're, they're going to be hard to reach and hard to disciple. But God has many people in this city. Amen? You just got to get to them. And so here's Paul. I, I get it. Like, I get scared too. I get it. I get it. He's a fear and much trembling. I'm just going to keep my silence. Oh, I got a great team gathered around me. And, and the great, uh, the, the, the Holy Spirit, Christ, Jesus, the resurrected Christ appears he said, don't be afraid. Speak what I put in your heart. Be confident in that word. 
It is the power of God and the salvation. To the Greek, it's foolishness. And to the Jew, it's a stumbling block. But to those who believe, it's the power of God. Paul, open your mouth. Speak it. I've got many people. I got many people. You're not going to get them all, but I got many. And he ended up with 70,000 people in Corinth. Think about it. A a city of 500,000. Right at a tithe of those people. Living for God. Never would have happened without a team, without boldness, without courage, in spite of weakness and fear. So, so a lot of times we criticize Timothy, right, Timothy? Paul wrote to Timothy, he's like, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. We act like fear never entered into Paul's world. And it's an unreal expectation for us as well. You'll never be afraid. He's not giving us a spirit of fear. And even missionaries will tell stories. They get, you know, we used to call it evangelist, elastic, evangelastic. Stretch it a little bit, you know. Stretch it, evangelistic. They'll tell these stories, and you're like, he's never feared anything, which is the furthest thing from the truth. They were shaking in their boots. Walking into that village. Hope I don't, you know, they call them headhunters for a reason, you know. I was with the the Gratians were here. We support the Gratians. They were in Papua New Guinea. They went into headhunter country, you know. They don't know it's not politically correct. (laughs) It's the truth. They, 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 They shrunk heads and all that stuff. They were the only cannibal tribe. So, just so what I'm saying is that shaking in their boots. Woo-hoo. But yet going anyway. Had a team. Well, he even took, so, so when Paul wrote that, Timothy probably got it. He's like, oh, whatever, Paul. I remember. You were scared. You were, I saw you shaking. I saw you trembling. But he pressed on in spite of that. That's a beautiful thing. Isn't that real? Doesn't that bring it down to earth? Yeah. Like when you're, and we got this little card, you know, so like, yeah, should I give it to him or not? <laughs> oh my God, it's such a scary thing. Welcome home. Welcome home. There, you know, after if you probably don't want to, but if you, yeah, ever did, you know, like, we'd love for you to come be with us at church. So, much people, you got to get out there beyond your comfort zone. I mean, doesn't that say, like, that's the people he won. The unrighteous, fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, homosexuals, sodomites, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. I don't know how to clean up that language. You go to modern translations, just as filthy as the old ones. Just, it just makes more sense, right? Some of the old language, we, we don't understand. The newer language, we understand. I know what that is. You know what that is? Got out there and he won them. Verse 12. When Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. 
<laughs> I like to read it real dramatically. And when Paul was about to open his mouth, so here he is. The Lord said, I'm not going to let anyone do you harm. And so the, the Jews rise up and bring him to the judgment seat. Gallio was proconsul. So they bring Paul to the proconsul. He's about to answer. He's probably shaking. He's thinking, I have a, you know, I got a promise. I got a promise, Jesus. I got a promise. You promised me. I've been beaten before. You promised me. Gallio interrupts. He's starting to speak. And Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O oh Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. And he drove them from the judgment seat. Then all the Greeks took Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. So I think it's interesting <laughs> that the Lord said, Paul, I'm going to make sure you're not harmed. But I didn't make that promise to Sosthenes, right? We're going to let old Sosthenes take one for the team. <laughs> so Sosthenes was, you know, he was beaten. But Paul still remained a good while. Then he took leave of the brethren and called for Syria. And Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He sailed for Syria, and Priscilla and Aquila were with him. He had his hair cut off at Centria, for he had taken a vow. We'll deal with that next time. And he came to Ephesus and left them there, but he himself entered the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews, because he always went to the Jew first. And when they asked him to stay a longer time with them, he did not consent. But took leave of them, saying, I must by all means keep this coming feast in Jerusalem, but I will return again to you, God willing. And he sailed from Ephesus. I'm going to go ahead and read through the end of this, and we can say we finished it, even though we're going to touch on a couple things going into Acts 19 next time. And when he had landed at Caesarea and gone up and greeted the church, he went down to Antioch. This is Syrian Antioch. After he had spent some time there, he departed and went over the region of Galatia and Phrygia in order to strengthen all the disciples. Now a certain Jew named Apollos, born in Alexandria. That, that would be like two hours up the road here. It's a long ways from home when Paul met up with him. An eloquent man and mighty in the scriptures came to Ephesus. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla, there at Ephesus, heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. This brings up all kinds of questions here. And when he desired to cross to Achaia, the brethren wrote, ex exhorting the disciples to receive him. And when he arrived, he greatly helped those who had believed through grace. 
For he vigorously refuted the Jews publicly, showing from the scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Now this Apollos character comes into the scene. Aquila and Priscilla, powerhouses, begin to show him the way of the Lord more perfectly. They begin to show you've got pieces missing, son. We want to help you out. And then in Acts 19, we're going to see where the, the church at Ephesus began in earnest and where Apollos ended up going. So that's where we are. Cool? Bottom line is this, God's putting a team together, and everybody has a story. We've come from powerful places, some of us, we've endured a lot, but he's put us all together here for now, and, and, and the low-hanging fruit, some of the people groups that we roll in, God's trying to get us to reach outside those people groups, because there's much people in this city, but it's not, it's not an easy thing to do, but God's going to encourage us and strengthen us, amen? Amen.